Hello and welcome to The Week in 60 Minutes, brought to you by Spectator TV. I'm Fraser Nelson, editor of The Spectator and your host for this week. Inflation has hit Britain hard, but if we're in recession, then why are there so many jobs? Kate Andrews joins me to try to get to the bottom of this mystery. Liz Truss will probably be solving that mystery when she's elected Prime Minister, but who's she going to have in her cabinet? Katie Bowles and Isabel Hardman join me to discuss. And Britain isn't the only country heading for a new female Prime Minister. Georgia Maloney is set to take the reins in Italy after the election there next month. But is she going to really be the most right-wing leader Italy's had since Mussolini? And if so, how worried do we need to be? And is Big Brother going to be regulating the internet and indeed internet shows like this? Jonathan Sumption joins me to discuss the online safety bill and whether it will, as he fears, cast a censor's chill down everything broadcast on YouTube or said online. Salman Rushdie is still recovering in a New York hospital after being attacked last weekend. What does that attack say about freedom of speech and how strongly is it being defended? I talked to our columnist Lionel Shriver about who thinks that terrorism is winning. And finally, is it too early to proclaim the death of cryptocurrencies? They've staged quite a rally in the last few days. Matthew Lynn joins me to discuss whether this is for real or just another crypto mirage. If you haven't tried The Spectator magazine before, then do give us a try. We've got uh, a rather unusually generous introductory offer right now. One pound a week for the first year. You can avail yourself of this rather uneconomic, for us anyway, offer on spectator.co.uk forward slash TV offer. Also, you can subscribe to this show for free, The Week in 60 Minutes, by clicking on the red subscribe button. Then if you click on the bell button, you'll be told every time there's a new episode. So first, has Britain entered a strange kind of recession? Technically, the economy is shrinking right now, and probably we're going to be told we're in a technical recession in a few weeks' time. But if you go outside, you'll see that companies still can't find enough workers, and the job figures this week showed vacancies at almost twice the level they were over the last 10 years. So is this a bust or a boom? I'm joined by Kate Andrews, our economics editor, to try to get to the bottom of this mystery. Kate, what's going on? Really difficult to say, but you raise an interesting point, Fraser, because historically we would associate a recession with linking negative economic growth and rising unemployment. And at the moment, as you point out in the States, we're not seeing that. America is in recession, and yet its latest uh, jobs update was rather spectacular. Over 500,000 jobs were added to the U.S. economy last month. Unemployment in the U.S. is well below 4% as it is in the U.K. I think in the U.S. it's at a 50-year low. So we're not seeing the normal coupling that we would get between negative economic growth and rising unemployment. I think there are a few theories, and I'm not 100% behind any of them, but if we're brainstorming why this could be, less so in the US, but certainly in the UK, the main economic policy of the past two years has been to protect jobs. If we think about one of the most expensive schemes throughout the COVID emergency, the furlough scheme, when we were taking major hits to the economy, all of the effort and resources was put behind keeping people in their jobs. So when the economy reopened, people could go straight back to work. I think. The furlough scheme turned out to be a big success. I was skeptical at first. I I think it is uh, well justified when you look at the data. So we're starting from a very low unemployment rate. Also, recession is defined by two consecutive quarters of negative growth, but that can mean wildly different things depending on how negative that growth is. And at the moment in the US and in the UK, I would say that we're looking at really stagnant growth, and that stagnant growth can be on the slightly positive side or the slightly negative side. In the US, I think in Q1, you saw growth fall by 1.6%. In Q2, it was 0.9%. Here in the UK, we're not officially in recession yet. People think in Q3, It'll technically be defined as that, but in Q2, we had 0.1% fall in growth. I don't want to underestimate how serious that is, because if we look at the forecast for the next few years, uh, possibly even after that, completely stagnant growth, not seeing that uptick in GDP is going to mean countless opportunities lost, a lack of prosperity, people feeling worse off. So it's not to say it's not serious. Um, but. We're not seeing that usual recession where there's a major dip, like, for example, we had during COVID. We're seeing something that's more 
stagnant. And I, I think the last thing I would say is we should be prepared for unemployment figures to go up. So usually businesses, when we go into recession, they lose customers, they lose profit, they find that they can't pay their bills and they have to lay off staff. Um, at the moment, job vacancies in the US and the UK are at record highs. Here in the UK, it looks like it's peaked, but it's only fallen to 1.2 million. So if you want a job out there, there are plenty to go get. Um, but as inflation continues to ramp up and as consumer behavior changes, especially with more rising energy bills in the future, we could see that businesses decide, actually, I can't afford all the staff that I'm advertising for right now. So we shouldn't get too comfortable in these very high job vacancy rates. It's positive news right now if you want to go out and get a new job or you're looking, you're, you're seeking a job, but I, I wouldn't get too comfortable in the notion that it'll be there forever. One of the things I'd like to explore about the British situation case is that when you go, you know, when you go out to a restaurant, stay in a hotel, you, it's rare that you don't see adverts for help wanted. Everybody seems to, to you know, you get some hotels even now are only open four or five days a week, not seven, because they simply can't get the staff. Um, and yet we've got, you know, we're technically in a recession, so those two things are strange to put together. But when you look at the number of immigrants, quite often Brexit is blamed for this. Well, the UK left the EU, and therefore we can't get the Polish waiters or the Czechoslovakian child carers. But when you look at the immigration figures out this week, uh, there is a record number, something like 6.6 .6 million um, uh, foreign nationals in the UK workforce. That's almost one in five workers in Britain is an immigrant. That is a, a greater proportion than even the United States. But when you look at the UK figures, um, it seems to me anyway, as if people who haven't, that furlough scheme that you were saying was a great success, seems to have not been particularly good at unwinding. We still seem to be having a furlough hangover where a lot of people weren't working during the pandemic and didn't return to work thereafter. And that, not immigration, is what's blown a hole in the jobs market. So there are a few things to break down there, Fraser, and I, you're completely right. If we actually look at the data for migration to the UK and the number of migrant workers we have here, it does not look like there's been a Brexit fall off. Now, it's important to remember that during Brexit, they estimate that up to a million people did go home. So that was an issue for a time. Uh, but now it, it does seem as if the numbers are balancing out. So this idea that Brexit inevitably and automatically means that we're going to have a labor shortage simply isn't the case. Labor shortages are being experienced through throughout Europe, in the United States as well. In the US, the labor market is very tight. In the UK, it is, we resemble the US a bit more in that sense, and we resemble Europe a bit more in this energy crisis. So in many ways, we're getting the worst of both worlds. But migration doesn't seem to be the immediate problem. As you've pointed out, I think, Fraser, you actually dug up the data. We do have about 5 million people of working age missing from the workforce right now. Um, no doubt furlough has played a role in that. And when I say it was a success, I mean it was a success in what it sought to do, which was make sure those jobs were available for people to return immediately. But there have been so many unforeseen consequences to the decisions made to lock down in the first place and all of the policies that followed from that. And I think a bigger criticism isn't the furlough scheme or the design, but just how long it went on for. I think you can make the case that it went on certainly six months too long, perhaps even longer, that once we had the most vulnerable vaccinated, you know, once we were in a position to meaningfully open up society, which we were originally told by politicians was going to be in the early part of 2021, and that didn't happen, perhaps that's when furlough should have started to wind down. That's when we should have gotten people back to work. So I think the extent and the, the timeline for which furlough went on um, probably has led to some of these more negative repercussions for people not wanting to come back to the workforce right away. Uh, but if you look at the unemployment headline rate, I think it's very hard to criticize it. That unemployment barely peaked over 5% during this insane economic crisis during well, these lockdowns. categorization error. I mean, it, it, sure, unemployment might not be 5%, but when you look at all of those on out-of-work benefits, as we say in the leading article of the magazine this week, it is 13% of the workforce are on out-of-work benefits of some kind. Now, just because fewer than half of those are categorized as unemployed doesn't necessarily make a mistake. It seems to me as if furlough, this furlough scheme has created a lot more damage to the jobs market than its supporters admit. 
I think it's really difficult to go back and say, gosh, if there hadn't been a furlough scheme, what would have happened? Maybe you would have seen the UK push harder to open up faster, as happened in the US. The US started opening up in summer 2020 and never really went back into proper lockdown. But it's very difficult to argue, given the fact that the government was regulating who could sit on a park bench, let alone who could go to work when you were supposed to go outside and all the rest of it, that you could have really at the same time also said to people, there's going to be no support for you when you can't go do this job that we're mandating right now, you don't do. As we say in the leader this week, Fraser, I think we should be looking at welfare reform. A lot of people are worried about talking about reform right now because they have the fear of recession looming over them. Uh, and oftentimes, you don't want to talk about these kinds of reforms when you think there's going to be a serious economic downturn. But given how many job vacancies we have, I think there are reforms that can be made. Be made, As the leader points out, at the moment, if you're on universal credit, you can get out of a meeting with a jobs advisor by working nine hours a week. With so many jobs being offered in this economy right now, that could be up to 15 or 20. So I think there are changes that could be made even with the prospect of recession looming. But I think that is the key to focus on, not necessarily furlough, because of course the US didn't do furlough. And yet we're talking about two countries that are suffering from similar labor market issues, despite one doing furlough and one doing something very different. Keith Andrews, thanks very much indeed. So the prequel to Game of Thrones is released next week about the House of Targaryen, which was eventually captured by an underestimated woman who went on to slay all of her opponents and take the throne. In related news, Liz Truss is now very close to being made leader of the Conservative Party, with a few more weeks to go left of the Tory leadership campaign. The, she has got more MP support now than Rishi Sunak, and the polls still suggest she's ahead amongst the general members by a ratio of 3 to 1, but the race still continues. In this week's magazine, Katie Balls looks at what sort of government Liz Truss might end up, might end up running, and she joins me now, as does Isabel Hardman. Um, so, Katie, Liz Truss has got the reputation of being quite a, you know, amiable, she likes a laugh, she's good fun, but not always the most forgiving of persons. You wouldn't want to be one of her enemies, yet she will leave this leadership campaign with quite a few enemies. What's going to happen to them when her cabinet is announced? Well, I think some of these, and perhaps uh, more than not, will be heading to political Siberia. Uh, you have a situation where I think in some cases, such as, for example, in the case of Dominic Raab, who is a Rishi Sunak backer, who I think is seen to have been particularly problematic by the trust camp because he uh, wrote an op-ed in which he likened Liz Truss's uh, economic plans to an electoral suicide note. I don't think there's any chance really of Dominic Raab having a role in Liz Truss's government or being offered one. Now, Given what he said, he would probably say no. You would imagine at the offer, but the offer won't be coming. I think also figures such as Michael Gove, who has not endorsed Rishi Sunak, but who I think has long been a foe of Liz Truss's when it comes to the cabinet. Some say they have a very jovial relationship, but I think jokes aside, they disagree on lots of big issues, particularly trade. And uh, there is a sense in the trust camp that when Gove is given a position, partly because he's a very skilled minister, he tends to extend his brief, um, you, know, you know, dip into other people's uh, departments, what they're doing, and therefore it's probably safer uh, to have him on the backbenches. And there's lots of questions, which is, if she actually has to lead a government, uh, will she be doing some big unifying measures? I think part of the issue is so many jobs have been promised, or at least supporters of Liz Trust believe they have been promised jobs, that there's not actually that much space um, to offer too many uh, across to the other camp. I think Rishi Sunak will be offered a job, but um, few would expect him to take that, and it's unlikely to be a particularly senior role. And um, let's, of course, see what the voting margin is if Liz Truss wins. So that's um, Michael Gove out, that's Rishi Sunak out, that's Dominic Rab out, all pretty big beasts. And by the way, Michael Gove hasn't said a word against Liz Truss during this campaign. But, but you're saying it's because, interestingly, an ideological split, that she's more of a free trader, where Michael Gove has been more protectionist over the years, and she, I mean, during government, Liz Truss ended up on the wrong, she, on the losing side of that argument. Um, I, I remember one, um, I, I heard anyway, of one meeting in cabinet where she was basically saying, look, Boris, um, we're never going to get a deal with America if agriculture is not on the table. And Michael Gove was chief amongst his voices saying, we are not going to let our agricultural sector be, as he put it, put it on the altar of uh, a sacrificial gift to America. So fair enough, they, but, um, they disagree. But when this trust becomes prime minister, do you think we're going to get 
more of a free trading because she lost out to Gove in that trade argument. There's nobody to lose to, lose to her now. So do you think she's going to have a change of policy and be more free trading and actually put, for example, agriculture on the table in a free trade deal with America? So, so I think her government will be very pro-free trade and more so. I mean, you mentioned Michael Gove. I remember at the time of that dispute um, writing a column where uh, a trust supporter um, branded them the Waitrose protectionists. And this included uh, Michael Gove. I think George Eustace too. They they were regarded by uh, trusted supporters as the axis of evil axis of being evil. overly protectionist. <laughs> Um, so I think there is a question as to, of course, how far does her rhetoric go once she has to get MPs to support measures? Um, but I do think if you look at the people who will probably be in the prime positions, so Kwasi Kwarteng is likely to be the chancellor. Um, you know, Liz Truss as prime minister is very pro-free market. Um, there will, I think, be a, a switch in the, in the balance of power and actually moving towards more ambitious deals. Because I think that uh, Liz Truss would probably like to go further, for example, in that Australia uh, free trade deal than she than she was able to do partly because of the what she was coming against in Whitehall and also from various forces within the cabinet. Might she revisit this really a trade deal then Katie? Well, I think there's there's a chance to try and revisit some of these things. Of course, she's going to have a pretty full in-tray when, when she first gets in. So I think they'll want to be more ambitious with the free trade deals. And I think Australia is seen as a key ally. But of course, the government has now changed in Australia. And I think when she first comes in, of course, the, the biggest issue on her table will be cost of living. And I imagine that will occupy quite a lot of her time in, within the first few weeks. So free trade reforms, Isabel, perhaps more trade deals. What would List Trust do domestically? Well, in lots of ways, we haven't had a great deal of detail about what she plans to do domestically. Um, but I think there are some interesting hints. One of them is um, on the NHS, which is obviously going to be a huge issue electorally uh, over the next couple of years in the run up to the election. And we've seen increasingly distressing stories about people being uh, you know, stuck under makeshift shelters whilst waiting uh, for you know, 14 hours for an ambulance and, and so on. And we're, we're only going to hear more and more of these um, stories. So that the pressure to do something on the NHS is going to grow. And the hint that Liz Truss has dropped there is um, slightly concerning for those of us who follow um, NHS reform, which is that she seems to want to do more of it, even though the current um, changes that have only just been enacted in the Health and Social Care Act 2022 uh, are only just bedding in. Uh, she seems to want to uh, flatten the layers of management within the health service, which would require um, a huge amount of upheaval at a time that I'm not sure the health service has any elastic left, um, certainly not for the sort of things like moving managers around and and changing structures that take up a huge amount of time and don't necessarily impact on, you know, clinical outcomes, waiting times. And, and she's only and that got kind of something thing. like 18 months realistically before the next election. So if you're looking at an incredibly condensed period of time, NHS reform typically takes a year to think of the reform and four years to carry it out. So what, she might try to crunch something like this in a, because let, let, let's face it, the NHS is already looking like it's in crisis, let alone a winter crisis. We're looking at um, flu levels in Australia, which are quite high. We're also looking at the potential of pensioners dying of the cold. I mean, we all know, all know the link between house temperatures and the over 80s ending up in hospital. So NHS is looking for an incredibly difficult period of time. But you think Liz Truss would still do NHS reform in the middle of what is looking like an NHS crisis? Well, look, she said that repeatedly throughout this uh, leadership contest that she thinks that the NHS should have fewer middle managers, that there should be a collapse in the layers of management within the health service. I suspect that that may not end up being a, a massive reform agenda once uh, she comes into office for all the reasons that you just listed. Um, I suspect there are two reasons for her saying it. One is probably that, you know, she is essentially a she's a think tanker politician, isn't she? She's someone who likes coming up with ideas, likes challenging the consensus, finds the way in which uh, policies and structures operate interesting, but doesn't necessarily sit back and think, well, is, is now the time to be doing this? Is this the right thing to do? Or even um, I think some of her critics who I've been talking to over the past few days um, would say, thinking about what's happening at the moment. Um, the second thing is uh, people just love bashing NHS management, um, which is kind of ironic because it was introduced by Margaret Thatcher. Um, 
which who is you know obviously the person who we must all sort of say peace be upon her during this contest as much as often as possible um but uh, she was the one who who recognized that the health service was in complete chaos without any managers with these sort of bizarre committees of doctors that were so, sort of run along post-war military lines um so again i think that's probably a sign that trust hasn't looked into this too much then we've got um just moving on from from the nhs which i always find hard to do um we do have the we've got the debate over handouts um in relation to the cost of living crisis but what might she do about welfare what might she do about um economically inactive people um the people who rishi sunak talks about quite a lot who uh, are on unemployment benefit at a time of a of a tight labor market that's a five a very... million of them yeah there's rather a lot yeah uh, it's but a the thing is katie if she's going to approach anything like this she will need a crack team of commanders around her do you know anything about for example who her chief of staff is going to be who she's going in for delivery so there's been lots of rumours, and I think uh, team trusts are very keen to not look too much as though they are planning for government, so as to look as, you know, uh, they've decided the, the the result of the leadership contest is already a done deal. Um, but we know that Liz Truss is now spending about half her time planning for government. The polls put her very far ahead. And some of the rumours, for example, you've had people say, oh, David Frost, uh, the former uh, Brexit negotiator, he should be her chief of staff. And he has been backing Liz Truss. You also have people pointing to David Canzini, uh, who has been a number 10 under Boris Johnson, um, saying that actually David Canzini could have that type of role. I think one of the issues with David Canzini is actually some of the Boris Johnson loyalists, many of them are backing this trust, are actually a bit sceptical about David Canzini when you break it down into the number 10 factions. And I think the name which I think... uh, you haven't heard so much of, but I think is a, a probable pick is actually Ruth Porter. Um, now, Ruth Porter is a former advisor to Liz Truss. Liz Truss, I think, throughout her career has always uh, made sure to keep in close contact with those who have worked for her, who she has worked well with and trust, even if they are no longer on the payroll, so to speak. And uh, Ruth Porter has been playing a, a very key role in terms of the campaign. And I think the reason that it seems quite likely she'll get such a senior role is there a sense that, A, I think Liz Truss wants to surround her of people she trusts. We know it's going to be a very tough um, you know, first 100 days, but also people who understand her and have worked for her previously, I think, um, as opposed to perhaps, uh, you know, the bigger names amongst the MPs. Isabel and Katie, thanks very much indeed. Now to Italy, where there's going to be a general election next month, and it looks set to be won by Giorgia Maloney. The Brothers of Italy party she set up only 10 years ago is coming first in the opinion polls, and it looks set to put her in power, in coalition with Matteo Salvini, whose fortunes have waned as hers have waxed, and with her former boss, um, Silvio Berlusconi, who is, yes, still going. So what kind of leader will she be? If you read around, you'll find some words associated with her pretty regularly. Far-right and post-fascist. So has Italy taken a pretty dramatic rightwards turn, or are the descriptions of her simply unfair? I'm delighted to be joined by Francesco Jubilai, who's written a biography of Miss Maloney out now in Italian and Spanish, not yet in English. But Francesco, tell us, where would you place her on the political spectrum? She says she's centre-right. Is she, or is she a bit further to the right than that. Giorgia Meloni, she's both a centre-right and a conservative. She's not a far-right politician as some liberal media and as some liberal politics try to describe her. In the last two or three years, Giorgia Meloni did a lot of job about her political position and she became a totally conservative leader. Of course, she's an Italian leader and when we talk about Italian conservatism, we have to say that there are some points in common with, for example, the American or the English conservative landscape, but in the same times, an Italian political leader is a leader of Latin conservatism. And when we talk about Latin conservatism, we talk about a conservative thought with some difference, for example, in the economic issues. Our conservatism is a conservatism that is more focused on the welfare state, but in the same times, she is also open to some classical liberal view of the 
the uh, economy. But when someone tried to describe Giorgio Meloni as fascist, when someone tried to describe a brother of Italy as a, a neo-fascist or a, as a post-fascist party, that's a way to not understand what is happening in Italy, because we can't say that 25% of the Italian are fascist, of course. It's meaning that brother of Italy is the party that is voted by some people that are linked to the middle class, but in the same times, it's a political party that is voted by the people come from the working class that in the past election voted for the left. So she's a totally conservative politician. So can you tell us a bit about her policies then? I mean, um, where is she on, on the family? Where is she on the economy? I mean, take Marine Le Pen. Uh, in France, so she is quite um, a, a quite socialist almost in her policies. So she's a believer in state intervention. Whereas, whereas we miss Maloney on that. Or also, let's take Russia. We know that Matteo Salvini had been leaning towards some Vladimir Putin sympathies, as is quite common in the um, in some of the more right wing movements in Europe. Uh, where is Miss Maloney in the great um, Ukraine versus Russia divide? I think there are many differences between uh, Giorgia Meloni and uh, Marine Le Pen, For especially from uh, a political history. For example, in Marine Le Pen and the Rassemblement National, I, I can define this political party more a post-ideological party. And Brother of Italy is a more a conservative party and is a party that came from the centre-right and the Italian-right uh, tradition. So this is a, a quite big difference. And another difference, of course, is the foreign politics. The foreign politics of the Front National and the foreign politics of other uh, national populist parties all over Europe is more uh, linked sometimes in the position of a Europe that is between the Russian world and the American and English world. Brother of Italy is in the foreign politics is a total Atlantic political party. So when the war started in Ukraine, the position of Georgia Meloni was very clear. And her position is quite similar to, for example, the position of the Tories, or is quite similar to the position of the Republican Party in the United States. So what Georgia Meloni say is that Italy must stay with Europe and Italy must stay with the uh, all the Western countries. So she condemned immediately the attack made by uh, Russia in uh, Ukraine. So this is quite a big difference. When we talk about uh, Brother of Italy, we have also to underline that is a, a political party that want to underline the importance of the, the family. And the, uh, the vision of the Brother of Italy concerning the family is more or less similar to the vision of the Catholic church so is for example in favor of helping the the nativity of people in italy we have a really strong problem uh, with the birth rate we, ha we have a really low birth rate and brother of italy underline how is important to do some politics in favor of the birth rate but in the same times what is really interesting in the economic policy of brother of italy is that in one way is the political party in favor for example of the low taxation is the political party in favor of a low bureaucracy. You know that we have a high bureaucracy and high taxation, unfortunately, in our country. So is a politic in favor of the entrepreneurial world. But in the same time, is also a political party in favor of the lower class. For example, if we look in the election in Roma or in Milano in the last years, we can say that in this, in the richest neighbor of the city, in the city center of the city, the people voted for the left. But in the in the poorest a neighbor of the city where there are some also social problems, some problem with immigration, the people voted for Brother of Italy and for the centre-right because it's a political party that also tried to help the people that are in a difficult social situation. Right. Um, but of course, I mean, Sweden, for example, there's a country which wants to do everything it can to increase the birth rate. So you can say there's nothing necessarily right-wing about that. But it is the case, isn't it, that uh, Ms. Maloney is against, for example, the adoption of children by gay couples. So there she is more socially conservative, perhaps aligned with the church. But there are another couple of things. When you try to read people, you try to understand it from a distance, you see, look, she's got as her party logo the, the flame symbol, which is controversial. Some of her opponents have asked her to drop it because of the way it can be confused with, with fascism. She doesn't condemn fascism. She says she's not a fascist. But she doesn't, as opposed to other members of the right, really go out of her way to say that fascism was a terrible evil. And isn't it also the case that Mussolini's niece is one of her candidates? 
and that some of her party members were in trouble when they were caught on video doing uh, the Roman salute. I think that when we talk about fascism, first of all, we have to say that fascism ended with the death of Mussolini. I don't say that, but Renzo de Felice, that is the most important uh, historian of fascism, and Renzo de Felice was a, a link with the Communist Party, so he was a left historian, he wasn't a conservative or a right historian, but Renzo de Felice explains that fascism ended with the, the death of Mussolini. So, Giorgio Meloni, born in the 70s, and brother of Italy, born 10 years ago. So, it's quite some way funny to, to say that she's a fascist or that her party is, is a fascist party when they are not linked at all with the history of fascism. Also because in 1995 in Italy there was an important uh, period where the uh, so-called Movimento Sociale Italiano, that was a, in some way a, a post-fascist party, decided to change and became Alleanza Nazionale. And when the political party Alleanza Nazionale born in 1995, they say explicitly that they are not linked with fascism. And Brother of Italy arrived after Alleanza Nazionale. And Giorgio Meloni explained in many situations that, of course, she is not fascist, also some days ago. But when someone defines himself as a conservative, is of course not a fascist, because a conservative is, is not a fascist. But what we have to say is that sometimes the, the left and sometimes also some liberal media try to attack not to the, the program of the Meloni or the program of Brother Fittel, but they try to attack her only to say that she's linked with fascism. And this is a totally big uh, mistake. And also the people that are the most influential people inside the Brothers of Italy are some young people that are 30, 40 or maybe 50, but they, they have a totally different history from some neo-fascist group that of course exists in Italy. There are some small political parties that are neo-fascist, there are some uh, small groups that are linked to fascism, but they are not linked with Brother of Italy. That is a total an institutional political party that governs some important region all over the country that is in the parliament from many years. So I think that is a narrative that don't help to understand why Giorgio Meloni became so powerful in our country. Francesco Jubilai, thanks for joining us on Spectator TV. Now, the online safety bill is still making its way through the House of Commons. Kemi Badenoch, in her leadership campaign, said she would scrap it because it, it was a censor's charter, she thought. Now, and that's disputed by Nadine Doris, the Secretary of State for Culture, who says that Kemi Badenoch has got it all wrong, that this bill is one that protects free speech. Damien Collins, who's taking the bill through the House of Commons now, um, technology minister, he says that those who think it imperils or endangers free speech in any way are simply confused. They've got the wrong end of the stick and they've misunderstood what the bill is really about. Now, this is all pretty important. If this bill goes through and it does what its critics fear, then what you're watching right now might suddenly disappear from cyberspace if one of the censorship bots decides that we've transgressed a rule. Or is that a dystopian piece of hysterical nonsense? It's difficult because it's a pretty big bill, but we have sought in this week's magazine a legal opinion from Jonathan Sumption, Lord Sumption, a former Supreme Court Justice who joins me now. Um, Jonathan, first of all, is there a threat to free speech in this bill? How do you see it? There's a threat to free speech in part of it. Uh, what Nadine Dorries has been saying is there's nothing actually in the bill which requires censorship. And that is, strictly speaking, true, uh, but it's misleading because the whole scheme of the bill is designed to create uh, a, a, a culture of self-censorship. Self-censorship is much more difficult to control and that is what the real object not of the whole of this bill, but of the most objectionable parts of it. So, so, so how would the government encourage self-censorship? How would that work? Who, who would we be doing the censoring? Well, the parts of the bill which I think are relatively inoffensive uh, are um, the bits about um, uh, uh, pornographic images and the bits about material that's actually illegal. And whenever Nadine Dorries goes on about this bill, those are the bits that she is really talking about. Uh, 
But the problem about the bill is that it also uh, is, it sets up a system for controlling what is called legal uh, but harmful material. So uh, material that you can communicate perfectly freely by any other means uh, is going to be to some extent controlled uh, by, um, uh, by this bill. Now the real vice about this is that it is actually impossible to define in any very precise way what is harmful. The bill attempts to define it as meaning any, uh, harm, any psychological or physical harm, which is extraordinarily broad, and it goes on to say uh, that if anybody does anything harmful to themselves or to other people as a result of something that's appeared on the internet, either because they saw it themselves or because somebody told them about it, uh, then that too is within the definition. So this is a wholly subjective definition. That's, that's the that's real problem. That's not a bit odd. I mean, say somebody's listening to our conversation now and finds what you're saying distressing. I mean, obviously that can't come in with the scope of this bill. You can't be held responsible for how our 100,000 subscribers to this channel, how any one of them might react to, to what they see or hear. Well, the definition is so wide that the only way that it can be given any real precision at all uh, is for the government to say what they mean uh, by harm. And uh, that is what the bill authorises them to do. It provides that Ofcom, the regulator, uh, is going to issue guidance uh, and recommendations uh, under the guise of rules of practice. But these rules of practice are ultimately under the control of the government because the rules of practice have to be submitted in draft to the government, they can be changed by the government, the government can say what they regard as harmful, and indeed they have already said that they would include among harmful things what they call misinformation and disinformation, which means things that other people think may not be true. Now here we are arguing about what this bill actually does. Uh, does that mean uh, that the government is entitled to say that you and I, Fraser, are engaging in misinformation and disinformation because we happen to disagree with the way that Nadine Dorries chooses to define these, these, the, the concept of harm? All government policies, believe, are based on the idea uh, that they are in the public interest. So if you challenge government policies, is it going to be said against you that you are harming people because you are seeking to undermine something that the government thinks is good? Uh, this is a, the very fact that one is asking these questions indicates how very vague the concepts involved in legal but harmful material are. So if it's so vague, then this would give any Secretary of State, whether Nadine Doris or a Corbynite successor, the power to say there's a lockdown, for example, that people like you, if memory serves, you were a troublemaker during the lockdown, you challenged quite a lot of what the government says. Now, say I was a Secretary of State, I could say, look, I think this, this assumption chap is um, undermining public health, um, he's making the government, contradicting the government message, I therefore am going... So would I have the power then, as Secretary of State, to decide that what Jonathan Assumption says is harmful and YouTube or Facebook or Google or whoever, but they can, they can all be punished if they go on to broadcast what you say on, on social media or an interview like this. They couldn't be as crude as that. Uh, they couldn't have guidance saying that you can't publicise Sumption's views. What they would do is they would encapsulate Sumption's views in a statement of things that were to be treated as harmful. Now, this isn't a fantasy, because you may remember that during the lockdown, uh, the uh, uh, social media were quite keen uh, to curry favour with the government. I think they were mainly concerned to avoid a system of statutory regulation, which they've now got, or may get. Um, and they, therefore, voluntarily uh, instituted a system of monitoring. And as a result... I wasn't taken down, but David Davies was taken down when he was making perfectly rational points uh, against the lockdown. Uh, talk radio was taken down uh, when uh, but they have a persistent record of challenging government policy on COVID. Uh, and this is an, a mentality that is actually very widespread. I think that one of the most sinister things 
is that the Royal Society, which is a society dedicated for the last three centuries uh, to scientific truth, uh, should have put out a document urging uh, that we should have legislation to stop people um, uh, challenging vaccines. Now, I am all in favour of vaccines. I think that the people who object to vaccines are just silly. But if people want to say that the earth is flat, uh, then I do not think that there's any right to stop them doing it. But the problem is this is happening now. The online safety bill hasn't been passed. And yet we're already seeing David Davis when he did a speech attacking lockdown regulations that was removed from YouTube. We saw the, um, I think we had the, um, the Morning Star, kind of a far left newspaper, its um, Facebook page disappeared. This censorship is happening all of the time. So what I don't understand is why you think this bill would change anything. Surely if this is happening, it's bad. But are you saying the bill would make it worse? Yes, because... Uh, the bill requires steps to be taken uh, in relation to the so-called legal but harmful material, which you first of all got to find in the vastness of the internet. Um, and it, when you've got a category of material which is completely undefined, except by reference to a completely undefined kind of harm that it may cause to a completely undefined group of people, how are you going to cater for this? Well, either you do what the government says, uh, or else uh, you simply take no risk at all uh, and uh, take it down anyway. Remember that this is a scheme which is enforced by enormous fines, 10% of global turnover, many billions of pounds, uh, and by personal criminal liability. Um, Internet companies are required to nominate somebody who can be uh, prosecuted if they get this wrong. Now, that person is not going to take on that responsibility without having some control over what appears on the platform that he's working for. And what that means is that he's going to exclude everything that he thinks has the slightest prospect of causing harm in the view of the regulator. Right. So say I am UK chief executive of YouTube, the channel we're watching this on. Under the bill, and correct me if I'm wrong here, I could be on the hook for 10% of global turnover. We're talking billions of pounds here if I transgress was a lot. So if you get it wrong, the potential fine it is, runs into the millions. Now, of course, I'm not going to have humans. Um, you know, when we, we recorded the show, we upload it. It will be scanned by a bot. I think there are hundreds of hours of YouTube content gets uploaded every minute. And there are thousands of sentences. So it's going to be robots who are already programmed to scan what we're saying to find out if we're, I don't know, promoting drug selling or terrorism or something. There will be keywords if we were to say them now. They'll be flagging up to the bot. So are you saying that this bot apparatus, as it were, will simply be increased to catch politically sensitive words and and will be told, if in doubt, cut it out? What they will do uh, is they will take uh, not single words, but blocks of text, uh, which they will take from a sample uh, of things that they think shouldn't appear, uh, and the algorithm will then link that with other, um, uh, with, with other material that it regards as relevant. And it'll do the same about images, but, but, but text is, is actually much more serious because that's actually where serious debate happens uh, as well as, as mis- mischief-making. So uh, the problem here is that the absence of definition is bad enough, but since it can only actually be done through algorithms... These are pretty indiscriminate. Algorithms do not... They're very insensitive to context. They don't distinguish between irony uh, and uh, straight statements. They, uh, they invariably catch too much, and they will be programmed uh, on the safe side to protect the internet company, uh, which will increase the tendency for them to catch too much. I don't think that it is ever legitimate to seek to establish a regime of control over material that you cannot define uh, except by reference uh, to guidance which is essentially produced under the supervision of the government. 
Right. So uh, we, we tried to get Nadine Dorries and Damien Collins on to join us here. Neither were able to. But they would have said, or what they're saying in public, is that people like you are simply confused. You've got the wrong end of the stick that the bill protects free speech rather than creates the threats which you say. Now, I will bow to your legal judgment, but what do you think should happen? Do you think the bill should be dropped in its entirety? Do you think that the legal but harmful, to use this phrase of censorship, should be dropped as well? Because, or do you believe, for example, either free speech should be legal or, or it should not be? Or do you think we should abandon the concept of a third term, or, or a third concept? What do you think the government should be doing now? Uh, I think that it should be uh, defining in the bill itself and not in ministerial guidance what it regards as offensive uh, so that Parliament can properly debate what they want to uh, exclude. Now, the, uh, what, it seems to me the essential criterion to be applied is it has got to be capable of exact definition uh, and it's got to be capable of being uh, precisely identified in the great mass of material that is on the internet. For that reason, I don't actually have a problem about what I regard as the main targets of this legislation, which is uh, pornographic images being available to children, uh, people under 18, uh, and uh, actual illegal content like sexual exploitation uh, of, um, of children uh, or terrorist material uh, or um, websites selling guns or that sort of thing. So all of that I have no difficulty with. Uh, and it seems to me that they could achieve uh, a great deal of what Miss Dorries says she wants to achieve by keeping it at that and dropping the bit about legal but harmful material. OK, well, let's see if she or whoever succeeds her will um, heed your advice. Jonathan Sumption, Lord Sumption, thank you very much for joining us on Spectator TV. Now, the online safety bill may offer a formal form of censorship, but in 1989, the Ayatollah in Iran decided an informal form of censorship by proclaiming a death sentence on Salman Rushdie in punishment for writing a novel, The Satanic Verses, which they regarded as blasphemous. So for 33 years, the novelist has lived under this death threat, and he was struck last weekend at a book festival. He's now critically ill in hospital in upstate New York. The novelist Lionel Shriver, who writes in this week's magazine about Salman Rushdie and the questions which the attack on him raises, and joins me now from New York. Lionel, thanks very much um, for joining us on Spectator TV. You mention in your book that you see lots of people defending free speech, but you note a sort of insincerity about that defence. Can you say more? Well, this occasion has certainly uh, been one for posturing and... I'm not opposed to posturing for free speech, but it just doesn't cost anything. It's a little cheap. Uh, and uh, in real life, especially in the legal system in the UK, uh, there's been a terrible corruption of the right to free speech. It's been quite curtailed. And I've been discouraged by the, especially by the creation of hate speech laws, uh, which uh, are defined as someone is offended, you know, someone thinks it's hate speech and therefore it's hate speech. Uh, it's, uh, it means that, um, you know, I say something, uh, that you think is a little mean or that it, it seems a little racist to you or something. And then suddenly the police knock on my door. I mean, with that broad a definition, you don't have free speech anymore. Um, the world is full of weirdos, and there's hardly anything that someone out there is not going to take offense at. And then you've got that bizarre category in the UK of the non-crime hate incident, which goes on your criminal record. So it's a crime that isn't a crime that is recorded as a crime. Um, and in the online safety bill, uh, which has not been passed yet, and I hope never is passed in its present form, uh, there's that uh, category of content, uh, legal but harmful. And that could apply to just about anything. So with this raft of legislation, uh, I don't think that you can really say that the UK uh, government supports free speech. And then there's the cultural sphere, where 
um, you know, poor J.K. Rowling. And again, <laughs> I never thought I'd say that a few years ago. Um, you know, is is viciously attacked for simply saying that there's such a thing as um, sex that 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 sex is real. But but aren't we talking about two separate things here? Of course, if you say something, you you can get a caustic reaction on Twitter. But it's not illegal. No, no, no police are being sent after J.K. Rowling for doing what she is doing. Um, so I wonder if, if what you're really talking about is simply a slightly more rancorous public note in public discourse. I mean, you, as a novelist, I imagine, wouldn't have come close to any brushes with the actual law in what you've been writing. Well, not yet. I think there's an intersection between these two things. And the police have been knocking on the doors of people who say things on Twitter that, that are objected to. Um, I agree that uh, the cultural sphere is not the same as the legal one, and it's the legal one that especially matters. Right. Um, but you also argue that you think that Salman Rushdie's would-be censors have actually been quite successful. I mean, when the fatwa was issued in 1989, I, I imagine it, was, you know, it would have been the first time ever that a novelist would have been given a death threat because of a cleric who didn't like his or her fiction. But the, the words of the fatwa was that the purpose of the fatwa was that so no one will um, dare insult the sacred beliefs of Muhammad henceforth. In other words, to set a new president that if you do come up with what they regard as blasphemy, then you can expect some kind of extra legal punishment. You argue in your piece that although Salman Rushdie is still, um, um, and thank God for this, alive, they have succeeded in casting uh, the, 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 the would-be Islamic censors have succeeded in creating effectively a secular rule of blasphemy. Yes, they have. I mean, um, if you look at what's happened in publishing, publishing uh, has become completely paranoid about uh, putting out anything that might seem to be insulting of Islam. And uh, I, I've heard it multiple places, uh, as if it's a veritable fact that the satanic verses would never be published today. And, and I, th I think that's true. And I think even Salman Rushdie would have thought twice about writing it in the current climate. Um, so that the fatwa has been broadly successful. Uh, we are very frightened of offending Muslims in any way. I mean, that whole um, Rotherham scandal of, about, you know, the police looking the other way, uh, where large numbers of mostly Pakistani men were abusing and even raping young white girls. Well, that's, that's rooted in the same problem. It's not just fear of racism. It's very specific. You don't offend Muslims. Now, why are they singled out? It's because of terrorism. And terrorism works. I mean, I, I spent 12 years in Northern Ireland, and that was the big lesson. Um, terrorism paid off for the IRA in spades uh, in the Good Friday Agreement. And uh, they're on their, they're, they have enormous political power now. They have not been punished for all those people they murdered. So... I mean, that's, that's the most discouraging, uh, that's the most discouraging thing about this entire phenomenon uh, uh, during the last, say, 30 years, is, is how successful it's been. Right. But, you know, but isn't this just simply about decency? You wouldn't, people might, would get the same reaction, I imagine, if you were to say defamatory things about Jews. Um, that was far more common a couple of generations ago than it is now. And, and surely, thank God for that. Uh, I don't think this is just about decency. I think, um, I mean, I, none of us have any problem with decency. Uh, but... This is very particular to one religious faith, and they get treated with kid gloves, and there's a clear reason why. 
Right. Um, but, but the thing is, I can't imagine, Lenny, that you're itching to write novels, um, Salman Rushdie style. You know, I mean, it's uh, on a practical basis, does this really make much difference to the way, to the books that you write, to the public discussions which we have? The Rotherham case was notorious, it became notorious because of the cover up. It now stands as a great example of why you need to talk plainly about these things. That was surely the takeaway lesson of that. And after the Charlie Hebdo massacre, you had um, people in, in solidarity with the Charlie Hebdo magazine publication in right across Europe. So the backlash against these things surely shows people quite very committed to, to free speech. And in spite of the skirmishes, we come close to press regulation, we come close to an online safety bill, but we never seem to quite cross the threshold. And it seems that, you know, I guess freedom of speech has always been in danger. But in this country, at least, we're still surely on the right side of, of the law. I think hate speech laws do cross the line. Yeah, I, I differ on that point. And it's worth noting that in the United States, um, hate speech laws are uh, in violation of the Constitution. So the U.S. does not have hate speech laws. And I mean, it has hate crimes, which I have a bit of a problem with also, but the, that's a different issue. Um, so I think these hate speech laws are, are it's, a, it's a wedge problem and they have grown only more expansive over the years because that's, that's the nature of the animal. So, um, you know, yes, it can be very moving with the, the, Charlie Hebdo demonstrations, all this sense of solidarity. Well, it's, but it's cosmetic. Uh, what really matters is, is reality and what, what you are allowed to say and not say. And while I am not personally as a novelist terribly constrained um, from writing a, a, a book about uh, a lot of Muslim characters saying mean things about their own religion, um, because that's not especially my my subject matter. But more broadly, my subject matter often uh, involves uh, various forms of heresy. You know, allowing my characters to say things that, that are unpopular. And lately in fiction, uh, we don't draw a line anymore uh, between uh, what a character says and what the author is trying to say through the character. So that, that the author is responsible for for anything that happens or anyone, anything that anyone says in the, in the book. And I do feel somewhat constrained by that. Now, my nature in response to that sense of constraint is defiance. So I'm further enticed to say things in um, my books and frankly, even in my columns, as you know very well, <laughs> that, that, that I'm not supposed to. But that is not uh, that is not what most people uh, that's not how most people respond to threats and intimidation. And um, broadly, I think that most of my colleagues uh, in the literary biz are feeling um, they better get with the program. There are certain things they better not put in print. Uh, there are whole topics that they're likely to avoid, even if they might otherwise have been attracted to them, you know, and this, this, these are not even controversial assertions at this point. Okay. Well, Lina Shriver, you've got a book of your own um, essays coming out and um, released next month in all good bookshops if they dare to stock it. Thank you for joining us on Spectator TV. Now, Lionel's last novel, The Mandibles, had as its premise that cryptocurrency had become the reserve currency of the world and the US dollar lost that status. She imagines a dystopia where the US dollar then collapses because crypto is so reliable, everybody trusts it instead. Well, that certainly does seem like fiction right now, where Bitcoin and all the other cryptocurrencies have crashed rather spectacularly in the last few weeks. Therefore, the dream is over. Or is it? In this week's magazine, Matthew Lynn points out that there's been something of a revival in the grave of cryptocurrency. He joins me now. Matthew, are you saying the whole merry-go-round is going to start again? Are we looking at another crypto boom? 
Uh, I, mean, I, I don't hesitate to go quite that far, and you know it's probably lucky that that you know you don't want to predict quite yet that it's going to replace the dollar because you know obviously anyone looking at the financial markets, looking at their screens the last six months, the dollar has been doing really really well and it's very strong, and and Bitcoin and the other cryptocurrencies crashed spectacularly. I mean you know um, down from about sixty thousand dollars for Bitcoin, which is always the main one, gets all the headlines, um, down to about nineteen thousand dollars. I mean that's that's a heck of a big fall and very very painful for anyone who holds it um and, but you know what's, what's been interesting just in the last six weeks or so is it started to turn the corner it's gone up again to um you know about twenty four thousand dollars. you know that's a significant rise um will it get back to its previous peaks well actually you know the interesting thing about bitcoin is that it crashes regularly it's an incredibly volatile asset but unlike a lot of kind of you know manias where it's kind of, it's classed as a kind of flimsy mania it crashes and it comes back. And if it does come back, if it gets back to the forty, fifty thousand dollar level, this will be the fourth time since it was created where it's crashed and come back again. And that's something slightly different. Right. But but let's talk a little bit more about why it crashed. I mean, those who love Bitcoin and other cryptos will say that you can trust it in a way that you can't trust fiat currency. That the governments, I mean, Lionel's book was basically written on the idea that governments will always use inflation to inflate away their own debt. They'll rip off the, the, the public. Um, and that's why people might ultimately, the patients might snap in, in government currency and they'll buy unregulated crypto because it's safer. Now, surely right now you've got inflation soaring. Uh, money was printed. So as, it, as people like Lionel Shriver and others were warning, uh, money printed today, inflation tomorrow. But it doesn't seem as if anybody's got any more faith in crypto than they do in these currencies, which are losing their value in Britain at the rate of 10% a year and in America a little bit more. Yeah, no, no, I think I think that's absolutely true. I mean, you know, the last six months, um, you know, they 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 kind of took you know the main argument for cryptos, which you just outlined there, and they 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 shot it shot it to pieces. It was it was supposed to be a kind of solid. Uh, it was supposed to be a digital gold. It was like the gold standard. You you know, when 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 governments printed money and debauched the currency and inflated their way out of trouble. Don't worry, your Bitcoin will be fine. And then actually, you know, inflation came along at 10%. Uh, people printed money, they divorced the currency. What happened? You think your Bitcoin lost three quarters of its value. So we discovered something interesting, which is it's not that. It's not It's not digital gold, uh, or at least the evidence would seem to point in that direction that it's not digital gold. It doesn't hold its value against inflation. But perhaps perhaps it's something else, you know, because, you know, I think, uh, you know, what interested me was it is, it is turning into a real asset. It, it falls. It's very volatile. It rises, it falls, but each time it rises and falls, it, it rises to a new level and it finds it finds a new floor. And that's looking a lot more like you know the equity markets or gold or the dollar or the bond markets or the property market. Uh, it's kind of what happens to assets. It kind of you know in Bitcoin it does it on roller skates, so it does it in a slightly more accelerated, exaggerated way. But that might be because it's new and novel. So I, I totally agree with you. I don't think it is the new gold. Um, it's not a hedge against inflation. But it does increasingly look like a real asset. You know, maybe it's something new that we haven't quite worked out yet. So what you're saying, Min, is this is not like the Dutch tulip bubble. This isn't something which has sort of collapsed back into thin air. This is something which has taken a knock, but has fallen at a sufficiently reliable place for us to think that it's going to be around for some time to come. So, so do you think that, that the crypto is here to stay, in other words? Yeah, I, th I think that's what's becoming increasingly true, that it's durable, because, you know, it's very easy for me to say, oh, it's like it's like it's like the Dutch tulip mania. It's like the South Sea bubble. And there's a long history. You'll know all of this. A lot of the viewers will know this. You know, the, the markets get incredibly excited about something and it turns out to be just hot air and nothing at all. So but you think, you know, think about tulips, you know, it inflated, you know, a, a massive bubble and then it burst. And then after that, no one was interested in tulips, you know, except when they wanted to plant their garden uh, and get some flowers for springtime. The South Sea bubble, you know, a huge bubble. Uh, actually, I, I checked because the spectator readers tend to know this kind of stuff. So I thought I'd better look it up. Actually, the South Sea Company did stagger on until the middle of the 19th century. Uh, but it was never it never came back as a, as a, as a hot asset in the way that it had been uh, during the Great Bubble. If you think about the radio boom that led up to the crash, you know, radio stocks never recovered. Or, or more recent history, the great Japanese asset bubble, uh, which was, you know, the Great Bubble of, of the post-war period, probably the greatest 
bubble and the post-war period. You know, the Tokyo market is still a long, long way um, from recovering its 1989 high, probably won't ever recover it in your lifetime or my lifetime. So, the, you know, I think the interesting point is this, you know, the bubble bursts and everyone moves on. They think, oh, that was crazy. <laughs> we really should never have got excited about tulips or Japanese property or whatever it happened to be. Uh, but that's not what's happening to Bitcoin. Uh, you know, the bubble pops that happened once, twice, three times and now a fourth time, but each time it comes back. So that's kind of different from a bubble. That's that's not that's not an investment mania. That's starting to look a little bit more like a real asset, like the property market or like the bond market or the equity market. So I think it, there is, you know, it's uh, once you get to 12, 13 years, three or four, you know, cycles of boom and bust, you've got to step back and say, maybe this is something real, although we still have a lot to discover about what it actually is. And finally, Matthew, I've got um, on my phone the Revolut app. I've got a Revolut bank card. And one of the options it now gives me is just sprung up buy Bitcoin. So I can buy this at a touch of a button. Should I? Is now the time? <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to, you're too smart, Fred. I'm not going to give you financial advice. I mean, look, you know, the past record would, would suggest that actually it does reclaim, uh, it does go above previous highs, you know. Um, so if you're looking at the charts, you would probably say, you know, when it's gone from 19 to 24, um, it, it probably, you know, the record would suggest that it will go um, above 60, which was its previous peak. Um, but, you know, it may take a little while. Let's be cautious about that, you know. Keep, keep Keep your phone in your pocket for a little a little while yet. Okay, well, well, Matthew, we'll call you back in a couple of months to see how uh, that prediction worked out. But thank you very much for joining us on Spectator TV. And thank you for watching. That's all we've got time for this week on The Week in 60 Minutes. If you haven't tried The Spectator magazine before, then do give us a try. We've got uh, a rather unusually generous introductory offer right now. One pound a week for the first year. You can avail yourself of this rather uneconomic, for us anyway, offer on spectator.co.uk forward slash TV offer. Also, you can subscribe to this show for free, The Week in 60 Minutes, by clicking on the red subscribe button. Then if you click on the bell button, you'll be told every time there's a new episode. So thanks to Max Jeffrey, our producer, and Kate Andrews will be presenting next week. Until then, goodbye.